Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm John Cannon, and we are pleased to welcome you to a book panel sponsored by the University of Virginia's Program in Law, Communities, and the Environment, PLAGUES, and by the Virginia Environmental Law Journal and the Virginia Environmental Law Forum. Our panel will discuss an important new book, Reviving Rationality, Saving Cost-Benefit Analysis for the Sake of the Environment and Our Health. The book is co-authored by Mike Livermore and Ricky Rivez. Mike and Ricky are with us to respond to questions about the book from our guests, Amy Sinden and Jonathan Adler. So this is a very distinguished panel and I'm at real risk of running out of superlatives in this introduction. So I'll try to make it short and we'll get quickly to the meat of the matter. First, our guests, Amy and Jonathan. Amy is the James E. Beasley Professor of Law at the Beasley School of Law at Temple University. She has written widely on cost-benefit analysis in policymaking and has twice had her articles selected as among the best environmental articles of the year. She sits on the board of directors of the Center for Progressive Reform. Jonathan Adler is the Johan Verhey Memorial Professor and the director of the Coleman P. Burke Center for Environmental Law at the Case Western Reserve School of Law. He is the author of numerous books and articles on environmental and administrative law and is among the most highly cited legal academics in these fields. To our authors, Ricky Rivez is a Lawrence King Professor of Law and Dean Emeritus at the New York University School of Law. He has published many highly cited books and articles advocating for protective and rational climate change and environmental policies. Ricky leads the Institute for Environmental Integrity at NYU, which works to improve the quality of government decision-making. Ricky's co-author, my esteemed colleague here at the University of Virginia School of Law is Mike Learmore. He is the Edward F. Howery Professor of Law. And like our other panelists, he has published numerous articles in major law reviews and journals on environmental law and regulation, and has also undertaken work in diverse other fields, including computers, computational analysis, and neurology as it relates to environmental valuation and decision-making. He was the founding executive director of the Institute for Policy Integrity and remains a senior advisor to the Institute. With Ricky, he co-authored Retaking Rationality, the 2008 prequel to the book we're going to discuss today. As we will see, a lot has happened in the regulatory and policy world since 2008, and that will be the subject of our discussion. So we'll begin with an introduction to the book by the authors. What is their argument? What do they hope to accomplish with the book? I'm reserving the uh, right to throw in some questions, but our main source of questions will be from our guests, Amy and Jonathan. We'll also have the opportunity to draw from questions submitted by the audience. So those of you who are watching, please post your questions on the Q&A tab that's on your screens and we'll pick them up from there. Mike and Ricky, if you will proceed, please. Great, well, thanks very much, John, for, um, for the kind introduction and thanks to our guests um uh for for joining us today and, and thanks to the participants uh for joining us as well um so i'll just speak for a, a few minutes to briefly uh discuss kind of the the first so some of the arguments of the book and and a little bit about our, our goals in writing it so as john mentioned uh we published uh, retaking rationality um uh, which was a which was a came out in 2008 uh right at the end of the george w bush administration uh, very briefly, the argument in that book was that cost-benefit analysis was an entrenched part of the regulatory process in the United States, and, um, and that the political dynamics around cost-benefit analysis were not particularly productive, in part because uh, many progressive groups had uh, removed themselves from the conversation about how cost-benefit analysis ought to be conducted. Um, and so we argued 
that, uh, that cost-benefit analysis should be seen and should become a neutral tool for policy analysis, not something uh, that is kind of used from one side uh, of, the, of the perspective. Um, and at that time, the cost-benefit analysis was uh, frequently associated with an anti-regulatory bent. So that was 2008. Uh, what we do in this book is essentially update us to the, the current moment and much has happened as, as John said. So we, um, one in several chapters, we cover the, um, is that uh, during the Obama years, the president um, and the Obama administration more generally was able to achieve a new kind of synthesis that merged respect for cost-benefit analysis, that merged respect for expertise um, and, um, and evidence with a progressive regulatory agenda. Uh, and that this was a, a, a major accomplishment as building on uh, earlier efforts, including during the Clinton administration, uh, but the Obama administration was really a, a kind of a new level of this, achieved this new level of the synthesis and uh, over the course of the, the eight years of the administration, uh, many important uh, rules that protected the environment, public health, um, that uh, inter, uh, uh, served to stabilize um, financial markets and the like were adopted, that frequently those rules were supported by strong cost-benefit analyses, that generally they had substantial net benefits. And so this is what happened during the Obama years. Uh, we also detail in the book the, the reaction uh, of some opponents of the Obama administration to this synthesis. And part of what we argue uh, is that opponents of the administration, rather than acknowledging the cost-benefit analysis was, was the terms of the conversation and then debating various particular questions or regulatory policies or, or what have you, there was an attempt to shift the conversation away from cost-benefit analysis, costs and benefits, rationality and regulatory decision-making, and towards other, um, towards, towards, towards other terrain. So the administration was accused of engaging in a regulatory tsunami or uh, engaging in a war on coal or um, adopting job-killing regulations. And these kind of rhetorical moves, um, I don't know what, how they were intended, but it, what they, the effect is to take attention off of costs and benefits and, and put them onto uh, you know, some other uh, politically salient issue. So, we do, and it, so what, one of the things that we do is kind of document this change. And then ultimately uh, we spend, uh, the, this, these developments serve as the backdrop for the Trump administration. So the Trump administration comes into power in uh, 2016. And part of what we do in the book as well is document the many abuses of uh, cost-benefit analysis during that time. Ricky, you're muted. So I'll um, take it from there. So the middle part of the book um, categorizes the analytical failings of uh, cost-benefit analysis in the Trump administration um, in some detail. And rather than go to this, to tell you about this chapter by chapter, which would be boring and would take way too long, um, I'll, I'll give you sort of two paired examples. So I'm going to talk about four regulations um, to show both that the analytical techniques of the Trump administration followed were totally outside of not just the mainstream of economic analysis, but a lot of this stuff was something that no respectable economist would say was even plausible. But then in addition to doing that, they didn't even act consistently uh, across regulations so that what essentially happened is that they picked whichever side of an argument um, supported the regulatory um, bent um, and didn't even worry about the fact that they were picking different sides of arguments for different regulatory proceedings. So, so one example, so one of the things that got a lot of attention was uh, the Trump administration's treatment of co-benefits or indirect benefits. Uh, there is well-established um, economic approach to cost-benefit analysis that says that cost that benefits, whether direct or indirect, should be um, taken into account in um, analyzing the effects of regulation. And this is essentially embodied 
in Circular A4, which is the uh, guidance to agencies on cost-benefit analysis that dates back to 2003 in the George W. Bush administration. But basically, the consistent federal uh, agency approach of looking at co-benefits dates way back to the Reagan administration and all the way to the George W. Bush and, and, and all the way to the Obama administration. So the Trump administration first called this into question in a very visible way when it reviewed the decision um, that had been made by the Obama administration that the regulation of hazardous air pollutants from power plants was appropriate and necessary. Uh, this is a regulation that had enormous net benefits and net benefits range between 36 and $90 billion. Uh, the costs were uh, 9.6 billion, uh, but it turned out that of the quantified and monetized benefits, the bulk were co-benefits. It's not that the direct benefits weren't significant, they actually were, uh, but only a small fraction of the direct benefits could be quantified and monetized because of um, limitations in analytical techniques. And the Trump administration basically said that it would not look at the co-benefits in deciding whether this regulation was appropriate and necessary and eventually concluded that regulating the hazardous air pollutants of power plants was not appropriate and necessary. Um, so you might think, and, and they've said other things in other contexts, including the proposed, uh, there's a proposed uh, regulation, the proposed rule on how to do cost benefit analysis for clean air regulations by EPA, which also calls uh, co-benefits into question. That rule hasn't been finalized, but the EPA administrator has indicated that he plans to finalize it uh, before the end of the administration. So now fast forward to a different um, uh, regulation. Uh, the Trump administration has decided to significantly roll back um, the, the clean car standards, that is the um, uh, standards limiting the greenhouse gas emissions of uh, cars and light trucks. Uh, and this is a regulation that EPA does jointly with the Department of Transportation, uh, which sets corporate average fuel economy standards. Um, so here, um, I mean, the cost benefit analysis is truly terrible. I mean, the, down to like arithmetic errors, we you know, don't have to get into that, but on the co-benefits issue. Um, it turns out that the only way to come even close to plausibly justifying the regulation is through by looking at co-benefits. And that's exactly what the Trump administration does. Um, the, the, num the, the big numbers for them on the benefits side are on safety benefits uh, from driving cars. I mean, actually most people think that those benefits are, are made up, but for these purposes, it doesn't matter. Assume they're real. And now, you know, focus on, uh, on the inconsistency. Um, so here, um, from EPA's perspective, the safety benefits are definitely co-benefits because EPA doesn't have any like jurisdiction to promote the safety of vehicles. I mean, EPA's only interest in this is in reducing emissions. That is the direct benefit under which this regulation is promulgated. And there's no question that that's the case. Uh, the part of the transportation is only slightly more complicated. I mean, they actually do have a jurisdiction to regulate the safety uh, features of cars, but not under the program under which the CAFE standards are set. The CAFE standards date back to um, the um, energy crisis of the 1970s, and they're designed to reduce our dependence on, um, on foreign oil. And so the direct benefits are the reductions in um, gasoline consumption. Um, Safety benefits are, are plausible, um, but they're a co-benefit. So here the Trump administration is basically saying, look, in two important regulatory uh, proceedings, uh, we're prepared to take exactly the opposite sides of the argument. Embrace co-benefits when that helps deregulation, reject co-benefits when rejecting them um, helps deregulation. So uh, they're both acting inconsistently with the received economic wisdom, No. Respectful economists would say that ignoring co-benefits is a good idea. They're acting inconsistently with the consistent um, regulatory practice of administrations of both parties going decades. And then they're not even doing it consistently. And I'll give only one other example. Um, so this involves the use of transfer payments. Transfer payments is when some, you know, when one party pays money to another party, uh, those typically for cost benefit purposes are not considered either costs or benefits, they're just transfers because basically you know, if one payment is a cost and the other receipt is a benefit and they kind of cancel out. Uh, to the extent that the payment actually has incentive effects. So someone as a result of having to make a payment undertakes less of some um, uh, undesirable activity that is actually um, um, a benefit, but that's kind of like the change in behavior that comes from the transfer payment, not the transfer payment itself. Uh, the Trump administration decides to lower the royalties paid by companies extracting fossil fuels from federal lands. 
main benefit it cites is savings to the companies extracting these fossil fuels. Uh, not really even you know, acknowledging the fact that on the other side of these savings are, is a shortfall for the federal treasury. So first, it shouldn't have been counted as a cost or a benefit in the first place. That's inconsistent with well-established economic theory. No one would think it was a good idea. But if you were looking at it, you at least should look at both sides of the payment. I mean, the payment is going from one party to another. And, um, and they just look at one thing, and they call that the benefit. Different proceeding. The Trump administration decides to weaken the protection for uh, student borrowers defrauded by for-profit colleges and so on. What's the benefit there? The benefit there is the savings to the federal treasury. They sort of seem to overlook the fact that any money the federal treasury is saving is not coming to the defrauded student borrowers. And they also overlook the fact that in the other transaction, they thought that it was good uh, for money to stay in private hands and not end up in the treasury uh, in the case of uh, fossil fuel companies. Here, they think it's good for the money to stay in the treasury and not end up in private hands. You know, If you like believe in transitivity, what they're telling us is they prefer uh, co-companies to the federal treasury and they prefer the federal treasury to student borrowers. So by transitivity, they prefer uh, co-companies to student borrowers. But what's more important for these purposes is the inconsistent they see in the treatment of, um, of transfer payments. Again, both the fact that it's a departure from well-established sort of economic theory and having departed from that, uh, they can't even do it consistently. They'll take uh, whichever side of that argument helps their, um, um, the interest groups they're trying to, um, to support. So I'll stop there, but there are six chapters. We could talk a lot about these failings, um, but I hope this gives you a sense of how out of kind of off the charts, bad and corrupt, the analytical methodologies of the Trump administration have been. Okay, thank you, Mike and Ricky. Uh, and now we'll turn to uh, Amy and Jonathan, and I would encourage Amy and Jonathan to, to um, focus on anything that you've heard from Mike and, and Ricky, but don't limit your kind of questions to that. I think anything is fair game within the broad purview of cost benefit analysis and public policy decision-making um, as, as we've seen it recently, or as we might see it going forward. So Amy, uh, we'll start with you. Thanks so much, John and Mike and Ricky. I, I really am flattered that you guys thought about me for this panel. I have long been a fan of Mike and Ricky's work and the work of the Institute for Policy Integrity. Um, Mike and Ricky's last book, The Retaking Rationality, uh, is in a prominent place on my bookshelf. And I have to say, I often pull it off the shelf to refer to it. Um, for various things that I'm writing. And that's not something you can say about every book on my bookshelf. Um, and I'm sure that the same will be true of this book as well. It's uh, really, really a rich and important contribution to the literature. Um, the, 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 there's three sections in the book, one, two, and three. And uh, Riggy just did a nice job describing section two. And let me just say, I really have no quibble with section two. Um, you have really carefully, painstakingly documented all the hypocrisy, the dishonesty, the downright absurdity of the Trump administration's approach to, to regulation. And you've really done a great service by so thoroughly documenting those failures. In my view, the more controversial aspects of your book are part one about what came before Trump and part three about what should come after Trump where we go from here. And so I have to start us out, I have a comment and then two questions, a broad question and a, and a much more specific question. Um, the comment, I was particularly struck in part one in which you're describing kind of what happened in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. This section was just almost dripping with nostalgia for a bygone era. Um, this, these halcyon days when the regulatory system existed in this happy equilibrium. We had the left pushing for more stringent regulation and the right pushed back and OIRA was there as the referee keeping us on the consensus path of rational regulation. 
Um, and our hero cost benefit analysis was there to provide the guardrails that kept us headed down the middle of this road and kept the agencies making, in your words, sound policy choices that improve social well being. Well, really? Sound policy choices? I have to say, when I look back at the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, I don't think sound policy choices. I think of Nathaniel Rich's piece in the New York Times a couple of years back, Losing Earth, about how we entirely dropped the ball in those decades and failed to address the most gargantuan, catastrophic externality the human race has ever confronted. I think about Ronald Reagan moving in in 1981 and literally and figuratively ripping the solar panels off the White House roof. Um, you know, the climate crisis is the biggest, most consequential, most disastrous externality the planet's ever faced. And the regulatory apparatus in those years did pretty much nothing. Um, and of course, this is a classic externality, which is what you guys say is the sweet spot for cost benefit analysis, the situation in which it works the best. So I have to say the omission of the climate crisis from that part of the story really kind of left me scratching my head. But my questions are on a somewhat related but separate point. Um, also arising from the first largely from the first part of the book, um, well, throughout the book, I see you equating cost-benefit analysis with rationality, reasoned, evidence-based analysis, expertise, playing by the rules, um, as though cost-benefit analysis has a monopoly on those things. But I never saw you explicitly defend this notion that cost-benefit analysis is rational or explain why that is. Um, I, as you know, think there's plenty of irrationality in the form of cost benefit analysis that's practiced by the agencies in OIRA, even pre-Trump. Um, but maybe more important, you never actually define what you mean by cost benefit analysis. And you probably know this is a kind of a pet peeve of mine I wrote an article about how this failure to define what we mean by cost-benefit analysis really kind of muddies the debate because the term gets used to, re to, to refer to a whole range of decision-making tools that are on a spectrum from informal, kind of a Ben Franklin style listing of qualitatively described pros and cons on the one hand, to a highly formalized method that's grounded in economic theory and tries to calculate the net benefits of a whole series of incrementally differing alternatives and identify the point of net welfare maximization. And you never really specify which type you're talking about. Now you do, you do talk about your version of cost benefit being grounded in economic theory, you make multiple references to cost benefit analysis, measuring net benefits. Um, and you're clearly defending the form of cost benefit that's practiced by OIRA and the agencies pre-Trump this is, um, you know, under the executive orders and circular A4. And all of that points, I think, to, to the notion that you guys are defending primarily a form of cost benefit analysis at the formal end of the spectrum. But on the other hand, you also embrace the use of cost benefit analysis in instances in which significant portions of the benefits can't be quantified. Um, but there's a tension there. Um, the problem is that formal and informal or quantified and unquantified cost benefit analysis are really two entirely different animals. If you can't quantify all the significant benefits then you, can't then you can't calculate net benefits. And if you can't calculate net benefits, you can't locate the point of net welfare maximization and you can't mimic perfect free markets, um, which means at that point, 
your decision tool has really become unmoored from its justification in economic theory. Now, you might dismiss my question as trivial. You might say, Amy, you're just quibbling around the edges. Most of the time, this isn't a problem because most of the time we have the data and we can conduct a formal quantified cost benefit analysis. But my response to that is that you're wrong. And the reason I say you're wrong is because I did an empirical study. I looked at 45, the, the 45 cost benefit analyses that were associated with all the major rules issued by the Bush II and Obama EPA between 2002 and 2015, that 13 year time span. And 80% of those cost benefit analyses, in 80% of them, whole categories of benefits that the agency itself described as important, significant or substantial were unquantified due to data limitations. So this problem of unquantified benefits is not just some exception to the rule that rarely happens, it's pervasive. It's the vast majority of the cases. And that's at EPA where all the regulations are dealing with externalities, which you say is the context where cost benefit works the best. So, so this leads to my broad question and my specific question. The broad question is, once you embrace informal qualitative cost benefit analysis, haven't you unmoored yourself from the grounding in welfare economics that purported to give you the edge over other tools to begin with? Or put another way, is an intuitive balancing really better at erecting guardrails around agency discretion and political influence than alternatives like cost effectiveness analysis, feasibility, health-based standards, multi-factor qualitative balancing, um, and informal costs are grossly disproportionate to benefits balancing, scenario analysis. And while we're talking about these alternatives, why are those alternatives so conspicuously absent from your book, even though it's those alternative tools, not formal cost benefit analysis that Congress has in almost every instance directed the agencies to use in the environmental statutes. So that's the general question. And then the specific question is, would you guys support a tweak to executive order 12866 that says to the agencies, do not calculate net benefits when significant benefits remain unquantified and monetized costs exceed monetized benefits. Right, That's a, Great. a general question going to the heart of yes. the methodology that you rely on and a more specific question relating to a tweak, and this tweak. gets quite specific as we come up upon a new uh, administration. Great. So, uh, thank, thanks very much, uh, and I think we'll, we'll, we will both have something to say about various elements of uh, of, of your uh, of your questions and comments. So, um, so I'll just I'll just kind of get started, and then and then um, and then Ricky will chime in. I may, I may I may leave the unquantified. I have, I, have, I have something to say about that, but Ricky might want to go first on, on that stuff. But just to start with a couple of other pieces. So one, with respect to the um, the nostalgia uh, in the in the first section of the book, I mean, I think that's actually, in a sense, a fair characterization. Uh, it's all relative, right? And so these days, I, I I I'm feeling nostalgic. I mean, I've been feeling nostalgic for some time for 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 an earlier period of time. Now, does that mean that everything was Hunky dory, um, no, for sure. And we we do actually, in fairness, we say that. I mean, I think you can pick up a tone um, where we are uh, certainly, in comparison to the Trump administration, we make pretty clear that we think that things used to be better. Um, and I and I that's 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 just kind of the view uh, that we express in the book. I don't think the interpretation from there is that everything was great all the time. And if you kind of go back and look at um, you know, arguments we make in the first book, Retaking Rationality, we document a set of eight cost-benefit fallacies that had been, you know, kind of 
growing into cost-benefit analysis over the years. So that project is in part unearthing problems in cost-benefit analysis that had arisen. So, you know, so more broadly, um, you know, we certainly have been critical of, um, of you know, regulatory decision-making in the past. It's just that, you know, from a little distance, <laughs> the stuff that we used to argue about maybe just doesn't look as terrible. Now, climate change. Climate change is a big issue. There's actually, there's lots of very important issues that we have to address in our society. Climate change as an environmental issue is, is at the top of the list. Um, and yeah, and our regulatory system has done a terrible job. The, the, um, the, um, you know, the um, Congress is, is, has not been able to manage this issue either. Um, do I think that's because of a failure of co in cost-benefit analysis? Not particularly. I think that there are things we can do in cost-benefit analysis to uh, ensure that we're doing a better job of counting um, the, the um, harms of climate change. But, uh, but that's really, that's a big picture question. It, it's, it's not entirely orthogonal to the project of the book, kind of addressing the politics of climate change. And we have a chapter that's devoted to climate change and we've done a lot of advocacy on, um, on how to do climate change with respect to, to regulations, or how to do um, cost-benefit analysis with respect to regulations that affect climate change. But ultimately, I don't think one should look to cost-benefit analysis if the question is, why haven't we dealt with climate change? Um, okay, but that's, that's kind of very broadly the, um, okay, so with respect, the one thing I will say with respect to, to the unquantified benefits is because you had a kind of a, there's, there's two parts I, I took to your question or two critiques. Um, again, we're very open and in, in, in policy integrities advocacy and in the book and in retaking rationality, we talk quite a bit about the, the importance of unquantified benefits. And one of the criticisms of this administration is that they've done just an atrocious job of addressing unquantified benefits. And so what I take to be a, uh, a claim in your question is that if unquantified benefits are important, they represent important, if there are important categories of costs and benefits that resist quantification for technical reasons or a lack of data or whatever the, whatever the cause is, that that unmoors cost benefit analysis from its foundation in welfare economics. So I don't, I definitely don't agree with that. I think that that, I, I would just resist that. So, um, welfare economics doesn't require quantification. It just, it's not like part of what welfare economics demands as a moral theory, or I don't know that there's a version of welfare economics that requires specifically quantification. Now, can I just, uh, it might be that we- Can I just ask Mike, how, how are you gonna figure out which of okay, the alternatives good. is the welfare maximizing alternative? So, that, so that's the inquiry, exactly. So that's the inquiry. It doesn't necessarily demand that Okay, so 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 let's so okay, so we're separating these things out. So there's an inquiry within welfare economics about maximizing human well-being, and of course we have to like kind of get a bead on what that means and uh, and, and and so on. Now, um, in theory, if you can quantify, if you can express all costs and benefits in a common metric that is welfare, and then make a comparison, you you know you get the welfare maximizing outcome. Now, what do you do when you, when you can't do that, which you can never do? I mean, no one thinks that you can ever fully tackle a question like this. And I, th and I think the idea is that you have to use your judgment. Now, but with the inquiry is set within welfare economics, and then you have to use judgment about, you know, what you think the various, you know, the various factors are. Now, you might, you might not be happy about that. You might think that we would be better off engaging in other kinds, I mean, one, just morally, you might think that maximizing welfare isn't the right thing to be maximizing. So you might be a Rawlsian or you might be a libertarian or something else, in which case you just think we're doing the wrong inquiry. But I don't think that the difficulty of quantification, it counts one way or the other, because you know, at the end of the day, Rawls wants you to do maximum and how are you going to quantify, you know, how are you going to decide who's the least worse off person in society and what kind of rules you, now everything requires some judgment, I'm going on. So let me just get to the, the other kind of part which I think is actually the more powerful part of your question. Personally, I mean, just what I take uh, to be, um, you know, it, it, so, so the issue I think is, is it a good guardrail in light of the fact that you have to exercise judgment like this? So we can't separate out cost benefit analysis and say, this is the, 
you know, the more rigorous approach, because there's always going to be judgment. I think take your claim to be in part that there's always going to be some element of judgment because unquantified benefits. And, um, and how does it compare to feasibility and, you know, some other, you know, some other alternatives. So I think there's a, there's a, again, I really, I, I got to wrap this up, but what I'll say for, to try to say quickly is a couple, couple of things. So one is, um, we have the system of cost benefit analysis that's been in place for, at this point, four decades. There's a huge established methodology that's built up over time that um, amounts to something like a common law of how to do cost benefit analysis. So now it's not the law, it's just a set of practices that have been that, developed over can time. Can I just break in? It's not the law, And the statute mostly say feasibility, and that's also been in place for four decades and we have an established method and so on and so forth. So, well, okay, okay but, but is that the you guys aren't talking about the alternatives. We're, yeah, we're not, yeah, we're not really focused on, on the alternatives in this, in this particular project. Now, why is that? Well, I mean, again, you can't talk about everything. And in terms of a systematic approach that has been used across the administrative state that's embodied in that is embodied in executive decision making. You could talk about. I'm going to put this the question of the statutes because for the most part these days the Supreme Court is interpreting a lot of these statutes to look something like, "Hey, you guys ought to be doing cost benefit analysis." Can, can I chime in? Yeah, yeah. So, just want to you know I want to make sure we have time for for Jonathan's yeah. comments and be able to respond. I don't want Jonathan yeah, we're gonna, to, we're word, gonna get but... to him in a second, but. Yeah, so I, I want, I want to have a chance to respond to Jonathan. So I want to like say a few brief things. Um, Mike said a lot of stuff. In terms of the climate crisis, um, this is a huge failing of government. And we actually uh, explain that one of the problems with the way that um, OIRA review is done is that it is it basically responds to rules that have been sent. It's never proactive. It hasn't been proactive. We've written the whole piece about how OIRA should take a more proactive rule at looking at agency inaction. OIRA has traditionally reviewed agency action, not agency inaction. The problem with like, you know, the Bush administration was not that it was regulating climate change. It just wasn't doing it stringently enough. The problem was that it wasn't regulating climate change, even though there was this famous document out there that it inherited, the Canon memo that said that, um, uh, that, <laughs> that greenhouse gases should be regulated. So this is a problem of agency inaction. And we have not had good tools for dealing with that. Mike and I have written about it. I hope the ne next administration actually tackles that. But that's a, that's a failure for sure. It's a different failure. Um, in terms of um, um, these other things, cost effectiveness, feasibility, we've actually, Mike and I have written about this stuff. We just didn't write it in this book. Now, why didn't we write in this book? Well, you can't write about everything. I mean, I've written a lot of things. I've had, like, every time I wrote something, I had to like, put my collected works into that. It would be sort of hard. Um, but you know, a few things, cost, cost effectiveness analysis. I mean, that only has meaning if the goal is set. If you want to basically say, look, you know, we should um, uh, not expose anyone in the country to more than a one in a million probability of dying from exposure to this contaminant, cost effectiveness analysis would tell us um, what are the best ways of getting there? It wouldn't tell us that one in a million was the right um, was the right standard. You know, maybe it really should be one in a billion or one in a hundred thousand or some other number. And cost effectiveness does not answer that question. Feasibility analysis, we've attacked it. I mean, it's flawed on many grounds. First, it protects existing industry. I mean, in some cases, it says, well, what can they afford? And will go as far as they can afford. In many cases, they shouldn't be in business. They shouldn't be there. Um, and so, um, you know, we're protecting some. So I, you know, when I was growing up, I used the mercury thermometer. My mother gave me mercury thermometer to take my temperature. You know, it'd be crazy to say, well, what is like the best way of manufacturing mercury thermometers? We shouldn't have them. They should, you know, they shouldn't exist because digital thermometers do a much better job at, you know, much less risk. So, and we've, you know, written extensively about this stuff. Um, Disproportionate costs and benefits. Well, that raises the question: Well, how disproportionate, and do we have to, you know, do we have to um, quantify them or not? I mean, we've we are, you know, we've written extensively in this area. This book is not is not about that. Um, I don't like Mike. I don't think that the existence of unquantified benefits are a problem. I have a whole chapter criticizing. We have a whole chapter criticizing the Trump administration for equating. Uh, unquantified benefits with speculative insignificant or uh, uncertain benefits. We say this is just wrong and it's inconsistent with economic theory and it's inconsistent with the uh, standard practices of administrations for four decades and circular A4 and everything else. So I think we actually, 
you know, we agree with you a fair amount. I mean, in fact, I mean, maybe, you know, in your like dichotomy between Ben Franklin, who like does everything qualitatively and someone who insists in perfect quantification, we're kind of like in the middle. We're not quite where you are, but we're not quite in the other side either. And that's where we happen to be. So I'll stop there. Okay, well, I'm sure Amy has more to say, but we'll come back. Uh, yeah, to I have plenty more to say, but it's John. It's Jonathan's turn. Sorry, it's Jonathan's turn. Okay. Um, well, first, thanks, guys. I'm 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 happy to be part of this conversation. Uh, it's always fun to engage with with Mike and Ricky's work. Um, I, I guess a, a commenting question I'd I'd want to make one in term. I'm not going to try and defend the Trump administration for multiple reasons, um, but I do think as a general commentary on it, we do want to be careful about ignoring the role that statutory authority and existing legal baselines should play into how we think about uh, the costs and benefits of changes or deviations from the status quo. Um, and I do think that in some cases that does affect how we think about things like co-benefits co um, in particular contexts. Um, and I also think that, that if we're looking at the Trump administration, uh, and we're looking at what they're trying to do, uh, no one thinks that they're trying to maximize uh, the net benefits of government regulation. They, uh, they were quite explicit that they were coming in with a deregulatory agenda. That's what Trump campaigned on. That's what they sought to do. Similarly, more progressive administrations historically have not come in saying, we're here to maximize the net benefits of regulation. They've come in talking about holding particular interests accountable for the harms they've inflicted upon society or ensuring that certain folks pay their fair share and so on. And you know that's, that's where I think ultimately the democratic and political accountability and legitimacy of a lot of regulatory interventions or deregulatory actions come from. The fact that they have been you know, put before the voters in, in more normative terms. And, and that relates to a question that I have, which really goes to part three of the book, which is how you would like to see cost benefit used uh, going forward, either in a Biden administration or in a hypothetical administration um, that you have the, the opportunity to advise. And that is in terms, you know, is cost benefit analysis about the fine tuning of the sorts of regulatory interventions we make so if Congress says control emissions from power plants, cost-benefit analysis is going to help us think through that problem, or do you really, or do you view it more as the determinant of what sorts of problems we should be focused on in the first place? And if it's the latter, is that something that there is a legal authority for? And B, does that cause cost-benefit analysis to, in, in some respects, jump the tracks? That is to say, leave the area where I think we would agree it has a lot of value added and help us helping us understand certain sorts of trade-offs and overtake what, um, not to not to agree with Amy too much, but overtake what what I think we might think of our ultimately normative questions about how we allocate risk, about how we allocate responsibility, about what we conceive of as, um, the realm of voluntary choice versus the realm of governmental intervention. And if cost-benefit analysis is in, plays this larger role of figuring out, you know, what should we be doing to maximize net welfare? Um, you know, is that, well, I guess my question is, is that what you have in mind uh, for cost-benefit analysis? And if so, is that something that can really be done within the existing statutory frameworks? Great, great question. So, um... Maybe I'll go first. I'll, yeah. I'll just um, address some things quickly to give Mike time and then to give like the audience time and anyone else who wants to say something. Uh, so statutory authority. Yeah, obviously statutory authority is like very important and agencies should not act inconsistent with their statutes. And if there ever was a statute written saying, you know, in evaluating regulations, you should look at the direct benefits and ignore uh, the co-benefits, that is what Congress intended and that's what agencies should do. Um, I don't know of any such statute. And in fact, what I do know is that the Supreme Court and the DC Circuit, which are the two courts that have, you know, are most influential in this regulatory area, are moving in the direction of saying, well, regulations that do more harm than good are, 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 are violations of the Administrative Procedure Act and so on. And so, um, um, you know, we have to figure out whether regulation does harm or does good and, um, and, and all of the consequences should be considered. But yes, if there ever was, uh, a statute that was explicit about this, we should follow it. I just don't think that um, 
Um, you know, I don't think the Trump administration was saying, oh, you know, we are going to consider co-benefits in the case of the rollback of the vehicle standards, which is a good statutory authority for doing that. And we're not going to consider them for the uh, mercury and air toxic appropriate necessary determination for some different reason. I think there's something else, you know, going on, which is, which I, we've discussed in the book. Um, I don't think uh, that, um, cost-benefit analysis is answering the question of what action should the should new administrations undertake. Every administration is gonna come in, is gonna have its priorities and so on. And, um, and it's then gonna do things that are consistent with those priorities. But there is some obligation in what I take to be now the um, sort of accepted wisdom of the administrative state to look at the impacts of consequences. And actually in the environmental area, we really have to because, you know, most pollutants are now no threshold contaminants. I mean, we now understand they're no threshold contaminants. So, you know, when we sort of believe there were thresholds, we say, well, you know, we're just gonna to try to be below the threshold then we'll be able to get everyone full protection. We'll be really happy. But, you know, we understand that the science has evolved to make clear that's not the case. And also, we also understand that there are more sensitive populations. And even if for some individual, there was a threshold, there's gonna be a more sensitive individual for which that threshold will not provide protection and so on. So we have to sort of figure out where to stop. And, and it's not gonna be zero or else, you know, we're not going to have um, essentially, you know, any of the activity that uh, we have in our country. Uh, at least it's not going to be zero across the board. It might be zero with respect to some particular decision. So we have to look at consequences. And obviously, if we can reduce lots of risks really cheaply, we should do it. And, and if somewhere else, um, it's extremely expensive to reduce risk by that amount, maybe we should reduce those risks less and reduce more the risk that we can reduce very cheaply, because then we'll sort of have bigger risk reductions um, at lower cost. And, um, and these costs are borne by people. I mean, the benefits are also accrued to people. It's all people. I mean, it's, um, so we have to look at these things. Um, and, um, and I think the absence of thresholds makes it to some extent inevitable. Uh, one last thing about the Trump administration. Yes, I, I, I was involved in various debates with people, um, including Naomi Rao when she's the OR administrator. And she, you know, I think when pressed, I mean, I was on panels with her and, you know, I pointed out a lot of the stuff to her in panels. She would say, well, but at the end of the day, you know, we believe in freedom and what we're trying to do is protect freedom. And my response to her was your version of freedom is exposing people to involuntary risks that are going to kill them. Those people, that is the freedom for those people. You only believe in the freedom for the people imposing the risk. You ignore the freedom of the people on whom externalities are imposed. And frankly, there was no response to that because I don't think there is a plausible response to that. That is not a, a plausible version of freedom. And I pointed out this was you know, totally um, foreign to the kind of freedom that FDR talked about. We talked about the four freedoms that the founding fathers talked about and so on. So, um, so that's kind of my take on it. Yes, administration kind of priorities but calling this freedom is just morally reprehensible. Uh, so I agree with that. And, um, and just to kind of add, add an addendum to this. So, so I don't actually think, I don't know that I agree fully that um, you know, the Obama administration, the Bush administration, the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, the Reagan administration went and said, what we want to do is deregulate or regulate. You know, they, they would provide a, a series of explanations for why they would want to do that, right? Like they might talk about freedom, they might talk about you know responsibility or whatever. They would they'll use various types of normative frames, but if you look at their executive orders, what they say is we want to maximize net benefits for the public. We want to they they speak the language of general well-being, right? And that's the Reagan executive order. That's the Clinton executive order, which was put, which was left in place by the George W. Bush administration. That's certainly the Obama administration's executive order. Um, John Graham would talk that language, George W. Bush's OIR administrator, Cass Sunstein would speak that language, uh, you know, Barack Obama's OIR administrator, um, Doug Ginsburg would speak that language, Reagan's OIR administrator. So, um, so, so I think this is where the Trump administration departs, is actually in invoking these alternative normative frames without, and, and just kind of accepting at some level that their policy agenda isn't going to maximize well-being for the American public. I mean, if you ask Ronald Reagan or certainly Doug Ginsburg, do you think that deregulating is going to be a good thing for the American public in terms of its well-being? They would say, yes, government's regulating too damn much. We need to deregulate. And that's what's going to be good for the American public. And Bill Clinton would have a, a different answer about what's good for the American public. 
Um, and but they would use this language of well-being, and 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 ultimately they 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 the, the methodologically they end up um, with cost-benefit analysis and welfare economics. So I think that's the the big normative departure for the Trump administration is to invoke this other language and and a lot and either through manipulation or in any, in a few instances just acknowledge that what they're doing is to the extent that it's justified is not because it's good for overall well-being, maybe because of its freedom or some other some other value. And I think that's a that's a really substantial departure. Okay, so uh, friends, we have exactly eight minutes left. <laughs> so Amy, if you have a, a quick uh, shot and another really specific the last four minutes for Jonathan. <laughs> I have another really specific question about climate okay. change. Do you guys actually think that cost benefit is the right tool to decide how stringently to limit carbon. And I, I ask this because you seem a little ambivalent in the book. And of course, this is also a place where there's some staunchly pro cost benefit voices who have come out and said, you know, it really just doesn't work for climate change. I'm thinking of Jonathan Mazur and um, Eric Posner. Um, and you acknowledge that Obama's social cost of carbon was considerably lower than it probably should be. It just, and it, Ricky talked earlier about cost effectiveness analysis as an alternative. Um, this seems like a perfect place to use cost effectiveness analysis, right? Because we know what the goal is, right? We don't need cost benefit analysis to tell us how much we need to reduce carbon emissions. We have to lower them as much as we possibly can, as quickly as we possibly can. Um, so why not do what the UK did at least a number of years ago and use cost effectiveness analysis to set a social cost of carbon instead of cost benefit analysis? Mike, go ahead. Sure. Um... So look, if we were to set a, uh, a cap in the US or a uh, carbon tax, a price on carbon one way or the other, um, that was equal to a defensible social cost of carbon, um, that would be such a radical improvement over existing policy that I think any uh, argument amongst people who care about climate change over whether it's like ideal or whether this benefit is included or not, is is counterproductive. I think that you know there's many different analytic normative frames that one can apply to the question. I have ones that I like, but this is sometimes philosophers refer to supervaluation. It's the idea that you can use different normative frameworks and you can get at the same answer. Torturing children for fun is bad. If you're a utilitarian, it's bad. If you're a deontologist, it's bad. It's bad under many different normative frameworks. You know, real, reducing climate change or reducing greenhouse gas emissions um, to reduce climate change risk is justified under many, many different normative frameworks. And I think it is well justified under cost benefit analysis. And at some level, I don't think we need to fight about it anymore. But I guess my concern is that Biden's going to tell the agencies to go back and do another social cost of carbon calculation. And it's a waste of time. We don't have time. It's like an angel's dancing on the head of a pin exercise when we know what the goal is. The goal is two degrees, unless it's 1.5 degrees. But like, <laughs> we don't need to know the exact amount of damages from a ton of CO2. And we're wasting time if we spend time trying to figure that out, it strikes me. Do you have any uh, uh, further response? Well, you know, for starters, um, you know, lots of regulations have greenhouse gas impacts, um, either as directly or indirectly. And we have to have figured out a way of, of analyzing those, at least if uh, there's an executive order uh, that requires the regulations um, that agencies perform um, cost benefit analysis and justify the rules that way. And I think the the, the social cost of carbon process actually, I think has been a very desirable process. I mean, I think it has uh, brought attention uh, to, to consequences and brought attention to how high uh, the benefits are. I mean, we've written also extensively about how the Obama number was really a lower bound because a lot of things haven't been quantified. And I think that, you know, that's kind of an important thing, but, but to, you know, it, it, Mike is totally right. I mean, if we had, for example, submitted the clean power plan to the then existing social cost of carbon, we would have ended up with a much more stringent clean power plan. The clean power plan was actually leaving benefits on the table, even, you know, on, on the social cost of carbon. So, you know, if we sort of do this across the board and do it well, and we can certainly talk about uh, the next steps. I actually think that, you know, one of the failings here obviously is Congress's inaction and Congress's inaction um, 
you know, hampers agencies. They just can get a lot done on the regulatory side, but they cannot get certain things done that Congress could do. And if Congress wanted to have a nationwide cap um, and, and, and enacted it, then that's what we would do. And agencies could then apply cost effectiveness to figure out um, the, the cheapest way of achieving that cap. But unfortunately, we don't have uh, a cap in place right now. Nor do we have Congress. Last question to Jonathan. Yeah, I, I want to <laughs> jump in on that point because I think it relates to a, a, a bigger issue, which I I, I I know that you know that that I have uh, about uh, the project, which is, you know, we don't have a climate change statute. Uh, we don't have um, a, a statute that Congress adopted thinking about this problem, and instead we're trying to find other tools that Congress gave to agencies that are headed by unelected officials to address this problem through co-benefits or other things. And it seems if that's the road we're going to going on, maybe we have a, a story about how that maximizes net benefits uh, with regard to controlling climate change or other things. But it seems in terms of a, 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 a self-governing polity, um, it is profoundly undemocratic. And, when, and, and, and to compound that, right, the Clean Power Plan as promulgated by the Obama administration was likely to have been struck down in court. We can, the Supreme Court stated, it, which was incredibly unusual. And if the Biden administration were to go back and, and try and do an even more stringent clean power plan, it would be even more likely to be struck down in court. It would take years for the Biden administration to develop it and promulgate it, years for that legal challenge. And in the end, probably nothing would get done. And doesn't that suggest that for a lot of these problems, rather than trying to perfect our way of quantifying the costs and benefits through an administrative process, shouldn't we spend more time focusing on how to have our, our more democratic institutions actually engage in the practice of legislating uh, on the basis of the values that different groups and interests and constituencies have as a way of addressing our problems? I mean, it seems that, that at that macro level, you're moving chairs around on, on the deck of the ship when we should really be having these larger conversations, not in OIRA, not in the pages of the Federal Register, not in the DC circuit, but in Congress. Yeah, well, look, legislation will clearly be a good thing. And uh, we had a conversation about legislation uh, during the Waxman-Markey period. And unfortunately that legislation didn't pass. Now, having said that, I don't think there's anything illegitimate about EPA doing it under its regulatory authorities. I mean. Um, EPA has the authority to regulate air pollutants that endanger public health and welfare. Uh, Congress explicitly in 1970 did not want to list the air pollutants. It wanted the list to basically um, evolve as science um, improved. Uh, Congress clearly considered global pollutants. I actually have a, a forthcoming article that actually John Cannon has read and gave, given me good comments. Um, it turns out that in 1970, there was extensive, extensive uh, focus on, on global pollutants. Um, and it wasn't just like, you know, some random person testifying. He was the sponsor of the bill, the chair of the committee, the, the leader, um, uh, the, the minority leader, the majority leader. I mean, it, it was extensive reference to global pollutants. So Congress decided to leave the question of what's an air pollutant open so that the agency could adapt it as science um, evolved. And Congress explicitly considered um, the existence of global pollutants is absolutely no reason why the agency shouldn't. In fact, I think the agency has an obligation um, given this level of, um, of, of, of scientific harm to regulate uh, greenhouse gases under existing authorities. Now, exactly what form a regulation takes. Look, I mean, regulations do get struck down from time to time. And, um, and, uh, and obviously one has to consider the form, but there's, look, the Trump administration itself, I mean, has done it in a very, um, um, you know, weak and um, ineffective way, but the Trump administration is, is invoking the Clean Air Act to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. It's doing it through the ACE rule, which is actually a, a, a very uh, undesirable rule, but nonetheless actually um, takes the position that greenhouse gases are air pollutants for the purpose of the Clean Air Act and they endanger public health and welfare. Same thing in the rollback of the car standards. It has car standards. Uh, so it is again, acknowledging that greenhouse gases are air pollutants and major public health and welfare. So, I mean, this shouldn't even be a debatable point. You know, here, here is something that is really important. And on the big question of whether the Clean Air Act is an appropriate mechanism to regulate greenhouse gases, the Obama administration and the Trump administration agree. They obviously did it in different ways. And one was stringent, one was not, and one was well-designed or better designed, one was worse designed and all that. But on the big questions, they agree. And I think we, that kind of pretty much closes 
the, the conversation. I mean, we can now move forward and decide what are the best ways to do it, how stringent should we do it, and so on. We, we disagree on, on the Trump administration's characterization. But, but this Andrew is, Wheeler- The in, court's in, been clear though. Yeah, but, but oh, the court's been clear on, on mobile sources and in, on stationary sources in UARG. And, and, and Mike, I know you were here when Andrew Wheeler spoke and, and, uh, at our conference, and he said quite explicitly, the ACE rule is what it is, because the Trump administration believes rightly or wrongly that they do not have the authority under the plain language of the act to go any farther than the ACE rule does. And when, and when I asked him, should, should they do more? He said, if Congress gives us the, the authority to do more, we will do more. But the bigger picture is right, is that we all recognize, I mean, we agree on this call and I, everyone I think on that, that this is a huge problem. Um, but the idea that we're going to address it by ratcheting down NACs and catching, capturing the co-benefits there and ratcheting down this and capturing the co-benefits through an administrative process rather than through democratic deliberation is something that I think we should, we should be concerned about. Well, yeah, it's, yeah. A bit, bit, you know, it's a big problem, but one of the political parties doesn't think it's a big problem. And that is a big problem. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, we have an agency that has a statutory authority to do things. And they might be suboptimal, but they are moving the dial. And obligation. The agency has an obligation to move the dial while, when it can. And if Congress someday uh, ends up in a different place and, um, and one of the parties decides that this actually is a big problem, which it is, then there'll be like a good discussion in the halls of Congress. Right. But, but in the right. meantime, the, the agency has an authority to write, not just authority, has an obligation to regulate this stuff. And so, okay. All right. So I'm getting a message from our from our uh, webinar commandant that I should wrap it up if I can. And it's it's too bad to intervene in this conversation because it's clearly we clear that we have a, a lot more to say uh, that would be interesting and fun, but we are out of time and I wanna take the opportunity to thank all of you for joining us, all of our panelists and all of our audience. And um, this won't be the end of the discussion, surely. Sure. <laughs> So thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Uh, thank you all. And thank you, Jonathan, for, for leading us through this discussion. Great, this is a great occasion. And I appreciate it. Thank you, John. Thank you so much, John. And thanks, Mike and Ricky, for the book. <laughs>